These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. The year is 1274 BCE. In Egypt, Pharaoh Ramesses II has been on the throne for five years. He spent the first four consolidating his power and fighting pirates, which sounds like it should be its own exciting adventure, Egyptians versus pirates. These are slightly interesting, as it is a reference to one of the Sea Peoples, the Sheridan, who are going to play an increasing role in the post-Kadesh world. But before we talk about the state of the world after the Battle of Kadesh, let's look at what immediately precedes it. In the year before the battle, in 1275, the pharaoh launched his first Syrian campaign. In this, he was continuing the work of his father, Seti I, in reclaiming the lands in Canaan, modern-day Israel and Lebanon, that Egypt had lost due to the chaos at the end of the 18th dynasty and the pressure of Hittite expansionism. Two particular territories were at the center of the dispute, a small Canaanite kingdom called Amaru and a city-state called Kadesh, both of which are at present under Hittite control, though this has been going back and forth for a while now. Ramesses' first Syrian campaign appears to be fairly quick, and takes the region of Amaru with little opposition. Pharaoh appears to claim that he fought a local king personally during the battle, and overall managed to crush the kingdom of Amaru and take it over pretty convincingly, bringing home a nice long train of slaves. That train of slaves may have been sent all over Egypt, but after this first campaign, the pharaoh himself returned not to the traditional capitals farther down the Nile, the cities of Thebes and Memphis, but to a new city, which had been his father's summer palace and was now to be the full-time capital for Ramesses, the city of Pi Ramesses in the northwest delta region. This town was located much closer to the Sinai region and from there to Canaan, giving Ramesses easier access to the critical theater of conflict much faster than had he been in Memphis or Thebes. Perhaps he was just trying to show off by building a new city to be his personal capital, much like Akhenaten had done generations before, and just like Muatali was doing with his own new capital of Tarhuntasa. But the erection of Pi Ramesses, so much closer to the front lines, was a signal that this pharaoh would be focused intensely on the issues of the Levant. Meanwhile, up in the Hittite Empire, Muatali II appears to have been too distracted to respond to the capture of Amaru. Though Muatali has spent his whole career on the throne preparing for this showdown, and has even managed to completely secure the West and make the threat in the North negligible for the first time in living memory, the rising threat of the Assyrians in the east means that any deployment of troops south to handle the Egyptians runs the risk of leaving the eastern flank exposed to attack. Ultimately, we don't actually know why Muatali did not contest this first strike. Perhaps he was being cautious. Perhaps the pharaoh hit too hard and too fast to respond. My own suspicion, based on his apparent behavior after the big battle, is that the Hittites were mostly concerned about an Egyptian breakthrough and had troops stationed to respond to a deep push into Syria. 
Ramesses' first campaign, however, seems like little more than an elaborate raid, perhaps an opportunity to gather information about the local region prior to launching the larger attack. That larger attack would begin in May of 1274. Pyramuses, in addition to being a national capital, was also made into a war factory, reportedly producing 1,000 weapons every week, 250 chariots every two weeks, and 100 shields every day. The number of men who left with the pharaoh is disputed, as is the number of Hittites involved. Older scholarly examinations appear to favor lower numbers, around 20,000 men on both sides, which, despite being the lower bound, is still a massive battle. More modern studies, however, favor numbers much closer to 50,000 men on each side. The issue seems to be that, on one hand, we know the organization, but not the numbers, of the Egyptian army, whereas Pharaoh gives us a nice round number of 47,500 Hittites, including 3,500 chariots and 37,000 infantry, which doesn't add up even if we assume Pharaoh is counting multiple men per chariot. The issue is that, in many parts of history, especially the classical period, historians have a blanket rule that all troop numbers ever given in ancient records are grossly exaggerated, and therefore they start by simply cutting that 50,000 number in half and then working from there. However, as the more recent work has seen Hittiteologists like the famous Dr. Trevor Bryce weighing in on the matter, it is in fact the case that the Hittite army could well have supported a 50,000-man army, as we've seen in recent episodes. And so the idea that we should simply discount the only source for numbers that we have is perhaps misguided. Still, this leaves us with a situation where it seems like Egyptologists may tend to favor the lower end and assume Pharaoh led a bit over 20,000 men. I've seen maybe 21,000 and 23,000 both thrown around with seeming authority, while the Hittite scholars tend to favor higher numbers, putting the Egyptians at about 47,000. My own inclination here is to favor the higher numbers, and since there's broad agreement that the Egyptians were outnumbered by a small amount, that would make the official oldest story's guess at the total troop numbers to be about 90,000, including both sides. We'll assume that Pharaoh's estimate was pretty close, and that Egypt itself brought slightly fewer men to the fight, we'll say just... 43,000 to get some numbers attached here. On the Egyptian side, these men marched in four divisions, each named after an Egyptian god. The men of Amun division were raised from the city of Thebes, and presumably from villages nearby as well. This was the front division in the marching order, and thus the one that Ramesses himself was part of. Behind Amun, a few miles back, was Ra Division, raised from the city of Heliopolis. A few miles behind Ra was Ptah Division, men from Memphis and places nearby. And bringing up the rear was the division Sutek, or Seth, raised from the cities of the Delta itself. Basically, each of these divisions contained either 5,000 men in total, 
or they contained 10,000 men in total. Depending on what you believe, this gives you either the lower or higher number of total Egyptian troops. Regardless of your estimate of total manpower, it's pretty reasonable to assume that each of these four corps had 500 chariots. These four corps were supported by groups of auxiliaries. We don't actually know if these auxiliaries were foreign mercenaries, Canaanite vassals, or native Egyptians organized into special detachments. It is popular to claim that there was only one auxiliary accompanying the army, a group called the Nirin, and that they were Canaanite warriors, either mercenaries or vassals. But the truth is, we simply can't say either of these things for certain. There may well have been other auxiliaries whose role in the battle simply wasn't recorded because they didn't have the same impact that the Nirin did. The auxiliary detachments were mixed formations of chariots and infantry, and likely much smaller than the main corps, probably about 1,000 or 1,500 men per detachment. On the Hittite side, there's less that can be said for organization. We're going here with Trevor Bryce's estimate of 3,500 chariots and 37,000 infantrymen, led by Hittite King Muatali himself. Back in episode 67, we looked in depth at late Bronze Age warfare, and the significance of the Battle of Kadesh means that quite a lot of all that discussion plays into this battle as well. However, Muatali has, at some point in his career, introduced something new into the Hittite chariotry. The chariot is by now a good two or three hundred years old, at least in its late Bronze Age form. And in that period, advancements in metallurgy, carpentry, and horse breeding have allowed the Hittites to take what was already the heaviest chariot of the Near East and make it even larger. Now it could not only carry a driver and a fighter, who might have spears, javelins, and bow and arrow, but also a shield-bearer. This innovation is held up as characteristic of Hittites in all eras, but it should be stressed that we don't actually see it anywhere until the Battle of Kadesh. And Hittites have been fighting for hundreds of years now with only two-man chariots. In fact, the addition of a third man seems like it could have been an innovation designed specifically to counter the Egyptians. For while the Hittites had the heaviest shock chariots of the Bronze Age, the Egyptians had the lightest and quickest, and the Egyptian chariot was much more strongly focused on being a mobile archery platform. And quite famously, the Egyptian infantry tends to favor a much larger proportion of foot archers than other national armies. All this means that by adding a shield-bearer to the chariot who can intelligently defend the other two occupants from incoming arrows, as well as whatever threats might arise, all three riders can be much more likely to survive against an archery-focused enemy, remembering that these charioteers would have been prime targets for archers on the battlefield, thanks to both their prestige and their tactical significance. We assume that many of the same innovations which allowed the Hittites to stick a third man on their chariots were also being employed by the Egyptians. However, since the Egyptians did not make any changes quite so visually striking, we're forced to speculate that they simply made these later period chariots lighter and sturdier without any like strong qualitative changes to the vehicle. 
both sides knew that there would be a battle at Kadesh this year, and many believed that it would have been in fact pre-scheduled by the two kings through formal diplomatic messages. For the Hittites' part, scheduled or not, King Muatali needed to make the Egyptians answer for the capture of Amaru the previous year. For the Egyptians, the previous year had mostly just been preparation for this year, which was likely intended to be the year in which Ramesses pushed all the way into Syria and captured the entire Levantine coast for the kingdom of the Nile. Both sides knew that this would be a massive showdown, and both sides brought the most massive armies that each nation could support. Those who think that the Hittites brought far fewer troops to Kadesh than the upper estimates of 40 to 50,000 need to explain why Muatali would have brought fewer troops to such a massive engagement when previous Hittite kings were able to muster 30 or perhaps even 40,000 for their larger campaigns despite ruling over a smaller Hittite empire. Though we have documentation for the battle from both Egyptian and Hittite sources, the vast majority of the details come to us from multiple lengthy and detailed inscriptions that Ramesses had carved all over the country following the battle. Thus, we know the most about the Egyptian marching order in advance of the battle. Pharaoh began at Pi Ramesses, then up to an Egyptian fortress near modern-day Gaza. From there, it was 30 days to the town of Shebtuna, some 11 kilometers south of Kadesh. This is pretty quick speed, aided by the fact that he was traveling through territory that he'd worked the year before to subdue, and so he could depend on the cities he passed through to provide supplies and allow his men to get there quickly. He clearly wanted to reach Kadesh first and have the Hittites come to him. It was when he reached the town of Shabtuna that he learned that all of his efforts at speed had paid off. A pair of Shasu Bedouin had recently arrived in town from the north. Now these nomads are everywhere, and there's no particular reason to think that they were partial to one side or the other in this fight. Or at least, if you're Ramesses, there's no particular reason to be suspicious of them. These particular Shasu claim to have been former Hittite mercenaries who were defecting because they'd heard the pay was better down in Egypt. People have criticized Ramesses for trusting these two nomads, but really, there's nothing at all unusual here to draw his suspicion. Ramesses, or more likely some flunky under-Ramesses, asked the Shasu where the Hittites were now so that the Egyptians could get a sense of how much time they still had before the Hittites arrived. The Shasu said that the Hittite army was struck with cowardice, indecision, and poor organization, and were still stuck way up north in Aleppo. Now, Pharaoh was overjoyed with this news. He could advance quickly on the city of Kadesh, take it, and then move even deeper up the Levantine coast, capturing territory and plunder before the enemy would even challenge him. At Chabtuna, he crossed the Orontes River and was in the home stretch to his target. Now, I've placed a few maps from a few different sources on the page for this episode up on oldeststories.net. Not every part of this battle is clear, but the main geographic notes to keep track of are these. 
Kadesh is situated on the west bank of the Orontes River, which travels south to north. These are pretty much the main geographical concerns, the river and the city. Pharaoh's four companies were separated by miles, but at Kadesh, the plan was that they would link up again for the first time. Additionally, during the march, Ramesses had sent one of his auxiliary detachments west, these are the Naren, in order to scout that direction, then meet up with the main force at Kadesh. The next day, Amun Division, the front one with Ramesses and his bodyguards at its head, crossed the river and marched until it reached the city. The division selected a good spot to the northwest of the city and spent the afternoon making camp and getting ready to start a siege the next day. While Pharaoh's tent was still being erected, though, he received shocking news. Someone in Amun company had captured two Hittite scouts who had been surveying their location. Under duress, the scouts revealed that the words of the Shasu Bedouin had in fact been lies, and that the Hittite army was not in Aleppo. In fact, they were right behind Kadesh, tens of thousands of men and chariots lying in wait, and the first quarter of the Egyptian army had just walked right by them completely unaware. Pharaoh took a moment to berate his officers for this failure, but then he quickly dispatched messengers to the other three divisions. Ra Company was almost to the city, but the Ptah Company was many kilometers away, while Seth Company probably hadn't even crossed the Orontes River yet. The messengers were, in any case, too late. As Ramesses was learning that he had walked into a trap, the trap was already being sprung with the Hittite army crossing the river just to the south of Kadesh. The Ra division, completely unaware and in marching formation instead of combat ready, were hit before they knew what was happening by what may have been one of the largest chariot charges in history. We don't know what that chariot charge looked like, but that hasn't stopped historians from speculating. It certainly won't stop me either. As was mentioned in the late Bronze Age warfare episode, there was a time when modern scholars believed that chariot charges never occurred in the late Bronze Age, and that melee involving either chariot and infantry or chariot and chariot never occurred. In this paradigm, Bronze Age chariots were exclusively archery platforms. Nowadays, this is no longer thought to be the case. While chariots, both the light Egyptian styles and the heavy Hittite styles, could make ranged attacks, it's now believed that the Hittites would have had no reason to design their chariots in the way they did if they were never expected to be in close combat. Some still think that the Egyptians never fought their chariots hand-to-hand, -hand, but while the Egyptians clearly preferred to engage their chariots at range, the inscriptions of the Battle of Kadesh certainly suggest that Ramesses at least wanted people to think that he was personally in the thick of things. Thus, it seems likely that Ray Division was hit while walking on relatively flat ground with relatively little time to prepare, the perfect conditions for simply overwhelming the enemy with massive shock vehicles. The Hittites had spears that could have been used like lances, and they also had bronze swords and axes that could have been swung out the side. 
But in a charge like this, the real killer would have been the momentum of a heavily armored pair of horses, pulling a cart covered in bronze scales and loaded with three scale-armored warriors. Passing through the hastily drawn-up ranks of men, the chariots probably weren't even brought to a halt by the Egyptian speed bumps, and likely charged right on through, aside from the handful that would have been destroyed by lucky blows or careless driving. Both on approach and as the chariot passed out the other side, one man in the chariot would have been sending arrows or javelins into the infantry to kill whoever wasn't directly in the path of the vehicle. But even before the chariots pulled away completely, with a final few arrows landing in the by now greatly disoriented mass of Egyptian infantry, a second wave is coming. Now, I will freely admit that our evidence for this second wave is scanty. Mostly what we can say is that it may have been practiced among the Egyptians and perhaps the Mitanni, and it's not known from Hittite sources directly. However, I think that this charge would likely have been followed up by a contingent of infantry specialists, sometimes called runners. The reason that they're called runners is because their job was to run behind the chariots. This may sound absurd, and indeed many people have criticized it for that, until you realize that the chariot is going to be spending most of the battle at relatively low speeds, and only gets faster than a human can run for relatively short periods. Otherwise, they would exhaust and probably kill the horses. Remember that in ancient times, and indeed even in parts of Africa today, there are men who can outrun horses on a regular basis over long distances. So the idea that ancient Bronze Age people couldn't have been trained in this way is a bit silly. These runners follow up each chariot, perhaps a handful to a dozen per chariot, and quickly attack any disoriented infantry they run by. But some suggest that this follow-up strike was not even the most important function that the runners served. If two chariots were dueling, and one crashed or was broken or overturned, the other chariot would likely be moving too quickly to effectively turn around and attack the fallen charioteers before they could recover. However, the runners could overwhelm the downed chariot and capture or kill the charioteer quickly. Conversely, if a friendly chariot fell, such as must surely have happened even against the relatively unprepared raw division, having a small handful of infantrymen rushing behind could save the life of a charioteer and maybe even manage to rescue a horse or two. Given the high prestige and social status of every charioteer, comparable in certain ways to the armored knights of the Middle Ages or the superstar fighter pilots of today, Having runners to rescue them, as well as provide follow-up to their devastating strikes, seems to many modern scholars to be a reasonable inference from what are, frankly, some unclear references. Ray Division was, in a single blow, shattered. We don't have Egyptian casualty figures, but many were surely killed outright. The rest fled in three directions, some heading south to regroup with the Ptah Division, some heading north to seek shelter with the Amun Division, and some fled west, likely abandoning the battle altogether. It was those fleeing north that had made the most wrong choice, for Amun Division was the next target of the Hittite ambushing force. 
No sooner had the first Ray Company refugees made it into the Pharaoh's campsite than the Hittites were upon the Amun division, surrounding the disordered camp from south, east, and west. A shield wall was quickly established with the infantry, but then shattered under the weight of the charging chariots. And suddenly, 2,000 Hittite chariots, 6,000 men, plus likely a number of supporting infantry as well, were in the camp. Some posit that there were no infantry involved in this Hittite attack, and for certain, we know that a good portion of the Hittite infantry were still on the far side of the Orontes River, where the Hittite king Muatali watched the progress of the battle, ready to send his footmen wherever the tide of battle might require. However, the idea that there were no footmen at all is based on the fact that Ramesses' inscription focuses almost exclusively on the Hittite chariots. Now, there is no question that chariots dominated the battlefield, but we should note that Ramesses makes very little specific mention of the infantry in his forces either, even when we know there must have been infantry components of these divisions. And so it's perhaps a mistake to think that if chariots dominated the battlefield, then the foot soldiers must have just been standing around like spectators or something. Anyway, whether the camp of Amun division was being attacked by a mixed force or by chariots alone, the fact was that things were dire. Ramesses recounts that no amount of berating his men could bring order, and that the only thing cutting through the madness was the protection of the god Amun himself. The pharaoh was alone. Or at least, he says he was alone. Most folks think he still had a contingent of bodyguards, but having only moments before been surrounded by one-fourth of the largest army that Egypt has ever yet raised, and now being surrounded by only battle and chaos, he may have felt quite alone indeed. Amun Division was on its way to being shattered, just as Ray Division had. But Pharaoh Ramesses II who would in history come to be called Ramesses the Great, stood firm. 2,500 chariots surrounded him on all sides, men from 19 foreign countries. In fact, the victory seemed so complete that many Hittites had already paused in the attack to start looting the rich camp. It was the chaos that spared Pharaoh's life, but he was still badly outnumbered. Pharaoh, probably leading a small corps of loyalists gathered here and there on the battlefield, though again he claims he battled alone, launched six strikes against various parts of the Hittite encirclement, attempting to break free, attempting to rally men, and attempting to do damage wherever the Hittites had been too distracted by loot to keep their head in the fighting. But while the pharaoh played a critical role in holding Ammon camp together and keeping the Hittites occupied, it was the sudden arrival of another force that shifted the course of the battle. The Naren detachment, those auxiliaries that Ramses had sent west during the 30-day march to Kadesh, chose completely by coincidence this very moment to arrive at the city. Seeing that the fighting had already begun, they charged in from the west and broke the Hittite encirclement with a mixed force of chariots and infantry. The Hittites, warned from having already been fighting for so long, were pushed back. 
on the other side of the Orontes River, King Muatali still stood with well over half his remaining forces. He could not overcommit here, since he knew well that over half of the Egyptian army had yet to arrive on the battlefield. Some men had to be kept behind to hold the river crossing. Some had to be kept guarding against the unexpected arrival of more troops. Still, he had to do something, and so his compromise was to send 1,000 more chariots against the fighting to the northwest of the city. It was a gamble. Send too little, and he might lose the battle right at the cusp of victory. But send too much, and he left his army vulnerable to new developments. As it happened, a thousand chariots was not enough. Though both sides fought fiercely, the Egyptians were able to rally more completely than expected, and with the sudden appearance of the Naren auxiliaries, the encirclement was destroyed. The Hittites were pushed back to the river. Many of them were even pushed into the river, where they drowned. As Muatali watched, he had the option of sending in more troops from his reserve across the river. But he also saw the 3rd Egyptian Division, Ptah Company, coming in from the south. Ultimately, Muatali decided it wasn't worth it. The newly arrived Egyptians would be able to contest on even terms with any reinforcements he sent, and a prolonged battle would only result in the 4th Egyptian company arriving later on. The element of surprise was lost, and the Hittites, in orderly manner, pulled back from Kadesh, using the Orontes River to shield their withdrawal. The first day of the Battle of Kadesh had ended and the Ramesses left the northern camp and spent the night in a new camp to the southwest of the city, it was the Egyptians that still held the battlefield while the Hittites had withdrawn to a safe distance away. It was the Egyptians who had Hittite prisoners, while the Hittites had nothing to show for their efforts. Ramesses spent the night castigating his army as cowards, and also in praising the Egyptian gods for the victory. But though the Hittites had withdrawn, Muatali looked at the outcome with what must have been a measure of satisfaction. At the price of a relatively small proportion of casualties, probably less than 10% of his whole force, he had shattered two quarters of the Egyptian army and stopped them dead in their tracks at the very first step of what had been intended as a grand conquest of all of Syria. What happened the next day is less clear. Seth's division arrived either that night or early the next morning, having missed the battle entirely. Once his whole army was formed up, it appears that Ramesses executed a large number of men who had broken and fled and had a great deal of fury to vent on his officers. Then, in the hills north of Kadesh, there appears to have been a small skirmish, but the result was either inconclusive or a solid Egyptian defeat. The Battle of Kadesh was over. The land around Kadesh was still held by the Egyptians, but the city itself had not yet come under siege and remained under a Hittite vassal. Ramesses, with a Hittite army that now solidly outnumbered his own camped up in the hills north of Kadesh, could not lay siege to the city without risking getting attacked in the back, and the whole value of Kadesh was that it was at such a strategic location along the Canaanite coast that it could not be safely bypassed. And so, 
With further campaigning stalled out for the year, the Egyptians took what few prisoners they had and returned home. With the Egyptians out of the picture, Muatali went down to Amaru, the kingdom that Ramesses had taken over just the year prior, and brought it back into the Hittite fold. Muatali, quite unreasonably, accused the Amaru king Ben Teshina of faithlessness, giving him no credit at all for his attempts at resisting the Egyptian army, and deposed him in favor of his son. Ramesses claimed a great victory to the people of Egypt, but despite the shedding of a great deal of blood, the border had not moved a single inch from where it had been when he took the throne. What's more, Canaanite cities in the Egyptian Levant would, over the next few years, attempt to revolt and distract Ramesses from what he considered more important matters. But though most would call this a Hittite victory, it had come at a substantial cost. Some estimates say 2,000 chariots were lost, a massive loss that would take the empire a generation to recover from. Each chariot took hundreds of hours of highly skilled craftsmanship. Each man lost was a flower of the Hittite nobility, and horses were still rare enough that this likely represented a substantial fraction of all the breeding horses in Anatolia. More importantly, though the Egyptians had been beaten this time, their strength had not been broken in any substantial way. Muatali, and soon his successors, will have the tension of being pressed on the south and on the east by Egypt and Assyria, and are now only a century from complete collapse, despite being at the absolute zenith of their power. But next episode, we'll not be looking at the road to that collapse. We've gotten a bit ahead of where we left off our story in Mesopotamia, and have for the last few episodes started talking about a player who once barely factored into our story not long ago, the Assyrians. The good news here is that all this jumping around from Anatolia to Mesopotamia will end soon. The bad news is, it hasn't ended yet. Our long-term plan is to return to Mesopotamia to witness the rise of Assyria and the fall of the Kassite dynasty in Babylon. After that, we'll return to Anatolia to see the destruction of the Hittite Empire, and then what I expect will be a series of episodes dedicated to the Bronze Age collapse, and perhaps a handful of nice overviews about the Bronze Age as a whole, politically and technologically. After that, We'll have a nice, linear narrative as we march through the Age of Empires to the final destination of our show, the ultimate destruction of Babylon. But all that is a long way away. For now, we're going to return to the humble city of Asher for the first time in, goodness, 30 episodes. I swear I did not intend to be away for so long, but that's how it goes when the Hittites are just this exciting. So join us next time as we return to an age when the Mitanni dominated the landscape, then watch with glee as they collapse yet again, thanks in part to the rising power of Assyria. Thank you for listening. <laughs>